Welcome to the Extra Environmentalist. Your opposable thumb means nothing. This is what we want to be. We don't want to be Americans or Germans or English. We want to be extra environmentalists. Always feel, wherever you go, that you are a stranger. The outsider. The one looking in. This is the viewpoint that makes all places the same to you. Hello and welcome to the Extra Environmentalist. I'm Seth Moserkatz, along with my co-host Justin Ritchie. Justin, how are you, man? I'm doing good. We've had a whirlwind of a month in February and only put out one episode, but you know what? That's fine because coming up here in March, we've got quite a few interviews that we're recording over the next few weeks. We're we're starting out with the interview we recorded today with uh, Dr. Patricia McAnany. But before we get into that, how is life in North Carolina? Tell me about it. Well, Justin, let me tell you about life in North Carolina. There is a Borders that is across the street from where I live, and it is having a liquidation sale because Borders is going out of business. So bad for Borders, good for me. I just bought two new comic books, which I'm really excited to read. The Avengers is one of them, and Thor is the other. I really like Ooh, Thor. Which which Thor? Thor was a very influential comic book in my life. I read Thor issue number 50 and I was reading that and the whole concept of gods and society and all of these things were very fascinating and how we treated our portions of society as gods and that's what that issue of the comic book really dove into. This one is called Siege Aftermath. I think it actually is the one where Odin dies. Cool. Maybe maybe we have the same version of comic book that we are both being influenced by. Yeah, I think uh, the Thor series really sparked my interest in mythology and the way that humans perceive myth. And in going back and thinking about a lot of those issues that I read of Thor, they, they really shaped some of my views on society. And then that got me into further readings on mythology with Neil Gaiman. And I started reading things like American Gods and the Sandman series. And once you start reading that, you're just never the same again. I did just finish reading Neil Gaiman's American Gods, and I I did enjoy that book. And it does have Thor in it. I think maybe that's how I got to the Thor comic book. Hey, so you just took the exact same route I did, but went a different direction. So that's pretty cool. Justin, tell me what's going on with the extra environmentalists. What, What we got coming down? We've got so many incredible interviews now that are lined up and happening really excited about them with so many authors coming down the pipeline the first one we have here today is a discussion about the issue and the mindset of collapse and we hear so often the movie that came out last year called collapse with michael rupert that kind of did a good job of summing up the collapse story it's the idea that Uh, civilization is sitting on a cliff and we're looking down into this giant abyss and we're on the verge of this massive collapse. And so some of the ideas of collapse started with Jared Diamond's book Collapse that came out in 2005. And it started to discuss the historical collapses of civilizations and the ecological environmental problems that led to those and how these were exacerbated by other problems in their societies and power structures and things. The book Questioning Collapse that we're talking about today is a collection of, of essays 
in-depth breakdowns of the stories that Jared Diamond tells in his book Collapse, but from a little bit of a different perspective and from the perspective of human resilience and societal transformation. The timelines of Collapse and all of these things are much more flexible and much more diverse than I think we are willing to consider in most of the narratives of Collapse. And so that's what we're going to be talking about today. That makes me want to listen to this podcast, that's for sure. <laughs> in some ways, quite an optimistic stance on the notion of Collapse and we always go back and forth between pessimism and optimism and you know those two stances are really worthless in debating facts because you either look at a collection of facts and you look at trends and you see how those can impact your life and the society you live in and it doesn't matter if you are being criticized for being optimistic or pessimistic or not if those are the actual trends that are, are facing the world but I think that if we can classify anything as optimistic, it is the discussion we had today. Because even though we're going to be talking about collapse of the Mayan civilization, we're going to see that it's more complex than the Mayans just fell apart. We see that there was a lot of adaptation that occurred along the way and a lot of opportunities for people as the civilization declined from its peak complexity. And we can draw some parallels to that now in living in the aftermath of empire which is perhaps a better description of some of these civilizations. They didn't necessarily collapse, per se, but they entered a phase that was the aftermath of empire. So do you so, think that the Mayans knew that their society was coming to an end when it did? Or do you think it kind of snuck up on them? I think it's difficult to be in a situation with so much change and identify it for that. Because... The Mayans, their civilization unwound over a long period of time. And yes, there were some critical breaking points. It was the case with the Romans. It was the case with the British. All of these very large empires that transformed. But the case in our current empire, the United States empire, the one that is based on a methodology of corporate capitalism and reinforced with advertising and mass media, the difference is that the change in this empire is happening rapidly. It's grown over an extremely short period of time and it's starting to unravel over an extremely short period of time. And so the parallels there are quite different. So yeah, that sounds like a very interesting podcast, Justin. I can't wait to listen to it, even though I was in the interview. Very exciting. Let's uh, jump right in and stay tuned for us at the other side. Do-do-do-do, music. You are listening to The Extra Environmentalist. Today we're talking with Patricia McEnany, one of the co-editors of Questioning Collapse. Today we're talking with Patricia McEnany. Patricia, you're an archaeological researcher and sociocultural anthropologist, primarily focused on areas in the Maya region of Central America. You're the Keenan Eminent Professor at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, which is where my co-host Seth graduated a few years back with a bachelor's degree in uh, journalism. And you're also the co-editor of the Maya Area Cultural Heritage Initiative, which aims to develop the value of cultural preservation within local 
Mayan communities. And today we're here to talk about your recent book you co-edited, Questioning Collapse, Human Resilience, Ecological Vulnerability, and the Aftermath of Empire. Before we move forward, is there anything I can add to or correct in your bio? The Maya Area Cultural Heritage Initiative is actually a project or a oh, program, okay. and, and I co-directed oh. with uh, Shoshana Parks. Just jumping in, kind of a background question. How did you discover Mayan archaeology and what sparked your fascination with it? A field season that I participated in in 1981 with um, a Mayan archaeologist by the name of Peter Harrison. He had received a National Science Foundation grant to study the way in which Maya people had coexisted with wetland habitats and the extent to which they had transformed or even created those habitats. He was in need of labor, and I was a graduate student at the University of New Mexico at the time, and so I signed on for a six-month stint doing field work, doing survey, mapping, and excavation of the settlements that were existing, that existed around one particular wetland in northern Belize called Pool Trouser Swamp. So that was my first introduction to my archaeology. How did Mayan archaeology lead you into this kind of look at collapse or maybe contrasting some of the stories told in Jared Diamond's collapse? One of the questions about the ninth century in particular in that part of the world is the question of why so many royal courts and modest family houses were abandoned in the ninth century. It's interesting because as we move through different societal concerns, we have a tendency to project those concerns and those worries on the past. And so as the first environmental movement, you know, the movement that uh, had a lot to do with Rachel Carson's Silent Spring publication, as that got underway, archaeologists and working in the Maya area began to think about whether a despoiling of the environment had been the, you know, the trigger for the abandonment of large parts of the Maya area. And then and as we move through periods of engagement in relentless, endless martial conflict, the U.S. that is, then, you know, there's a tendency to project that onto the past, too. So archaeologists do, we look around our contemporary world and reflect on our lived experiences in order to, in essence, you know, get ideas about what sorts of challenges might have existed in the past. And then we set about trying to evaluate whether or not those problems existed in the past. And so, for instance, right now, there's a real societal concern with deforestation. And so it's very easy to pick up a journal in which some archaeologists or plant person is alleging that the Maya lowlands were virtually deforested at the end of the classic period. And in point of fact, we have absolutely no evidence for that. And in fact, we know that arboriculture, that trees were, in a sense, orchard agriculture was a really important component of Maya in the Maya sort of agricultural complex. And if that was a very important thing, then, you know, deforestation obviously was something that was the culling of trees for the preparation of fields was was obviously balanced in some way by the planting of trees. My concern with my archaeology is that we're just not being very good scientists and that we're tending to allege that things happened in the past and assert that without really coming up with very solid 
scientific evidence that in fact this was the case. And so in questioning collapse and, and in other venues, I really try to challenge my archaeologists to, to be better researchers. Can you go into a little bit about the core ideas behind Diamond's Collapse? Let me just tell you just right up front that the intent, the mission of Diamond's book, Collapse, is a very noble one and that he's trying to really alert people to the environmental dangers and perils that are right in front of us that, of course, a lot of people are are trying to deny completely. And I applaud that. Where I depart from Diamond's approach is that I, I really don't think that one should pick and choose evidence from the past that suits your goal or your mission. I, I, I think that just does an injustice to the past. And I think that not only does it do an injustice to the past, but when there are descendant populations who are living and it's their ancestors that are being alleged to have been ecocidal or alleged to have been a failed state, um, and that's a pretty serious allegation. And I think that the, the evidence that one needs to have in order to to make an allegation like that. That has to be very, very solid and very secure evidence. And and there is, in fact, a lot of controversy about what happened at Chaco Canyon, why Chaco Canyon was abandoned, what really went on Wapanui on Easter Island, and whether that abandonment occurred before or after Europeans came onto the scene. Increasingly, it's looking like that depopulation occurred after Europeans came onto the scene. And it also looks, to me, like like in many cases, particularly at Chaco Canyon and in the Maya region, that we are looking at some failures of political system more than anything else. And we're looking at a situation in which abandonment might have occurred for reasons that were not entirely environmentally you know, instigated. And you- You're listening to The Extra Environmentalist, and we're speaking with Patricia McEnany, one of the co-editors of Questioning Collapse. Maybe you could go into some of those reasons, uh, some of the details behind the the excellent essay that you had in, in Questioning Collapse about some of the discrepancies with the general explanations for Mayan collapse. I always hear so much about the agricultural systems being so damaging, and there is quite a bit of evidence that sustainable agriculture, or at least some attempt at it, was being made. I think that the non-sustainability of an agricultural system, quite frequently, when that happens, it's usually because control of an agricultural system has been taken out of the hands of a farmer and it's there's a higher level control 
at a you know a kind of a nation state level or even an archaic state level, and there's really no evidence that that ever happened in the Maya region. And it looks as though the agricultural system that there always were a series of um, smallholders. The royal courts were not really controlling the agricultural system. We suspect that there were probably fairly large estates that were controlled by the royal families, but there were many, 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 you know, smallholders um, who were farming their land. And there were a lot of people on the landscape, don't get me wrong, and, and the landscape was being very was being actively transformed, but whether it was being driven to a point of non-sustainability, we simply don't really have any evidence of that. How can we portray an ancient society as a success or a failure? Is there characteristics or qualities that you can point to that says that they're a failure or a success? Well, I think the whole question of success and failure, putting it in those terms, it's like issuing a report card on the past. Did they pass or did they not pass? And I think perhaps another way to approach it or another kind of question to ask, it might be more relevant to the situation in which we find ourselves in today is to ask, what about these past societies appears to have been sustainable and resilient and what wasn't? Those things that were not particularly sustainable or resilient, are we still doing those same things? And in reference to the Maya area, I mean, the word collapse in many ways is, is a real misnomer because when Spaniards came onto the scene and hit the beaches of what is now Mexico 500 years later, there was still a hereditary aristocracy. There was still a logosyllabic writing system. There were scribes, the same language, same cuisine, very similar agricultural practices. Two things that happened between the classic period and what we call the post-classic period was a change in governance and style of governance. So rather than having divine rulers, there was uh, Maya were governed by um, Halachwinik characters or rulers they called uh, true men. There was a step back from this system of divine rulership and there was also a step back from spending exorbitant amounts of energy on a monumental architecture. So the public works, if you want to call it that, those had been scaled back. And then there had been a real population relocation. And that had been dramatic. It occurred over a period of about 150 years. And I don't know if it, in hindsight, would be any more dramatic than the population relocation that's happening in the United States right now. And, you know, that will have taken place over 150 years. So there was a movement of people out of the central lowlands, which are kind of landlocked, to riverine areas, to coastal areas, so that they were more connected to the cargo canoe trade that was really really ramping up at that point in time. And so there were fundamental changes that took place. And we we have, in hindsight, you know, we're very vested with uh, what I call the civilizational approach to the past and wanting to uh, sort of point to something if there's some kind of a change that resulted in less construction of something that we see as monumental or beautiful according to a Western aesthetic, then we want to project on that some sort of notion of decay. 
when in reality, if you are a commoner person living in Maya society, if you were living in, say, the 8th or the 9th century, it might have been a lot harder for you than if you'd been living in the 12th or the 13th century when life was a bit different. The rulers didn't have perhaps so much power. You know, I'm not saying that there was a democracy during the post-classic, but there definitely had been a change in the style of governance. So in the case of abandonment, is that the sign of a collapse or is it a sign of a social flexibility and opportunity elsewhere? That's an excellent question. And I'm thinking that if we don't approach the past with quite such a loaded gun, that we might be able to see that the latter. And I think in Questioning Collapse, the chapter by Mike Wilcox on the abandonment of Chaco Canyon, he makes precisely that point that abandonment is not always a sign of failure. Obviously, at that one point in time, something really wasn't going right. Otherwise, people wouldn't have left, right? So there was a problem, there was a challenge, there was a solution, there was a problem to which a local solution really could not be arrived at and people moved elsewhere. That suggests people were more adaptable and that there was a premium on resilience rather than um, staying in one place and, and not surviving. So what we tend to do with archaeology, unfortunately, is we take a kind of paleontological view of the past and if we see an abandoned site, then we almost want to see it in the same way that paleontologists see and talk about the species extinction, you know, some kind of a snail that went extinct at the end of the Jurassic or they can't, you know, the, the extinction of dinosaurs at the KT boundary, that was the extinction of a species and we can see, you know, their bones when we excavate in the earth. But that's a very different thing from excavating the remains of a of a palace or a pyramid or a castle that was then abandoned by people and people went elsewhere and the people survived. And in some cases, the society survived perfectly well, but there was something going on at that place that there were some challenges and problems that could not be solved locally. And so people left. Many experts say that we are living at the end of an, of an empire right now. Is there a difference between what we call collapse and living at the end of an empire? And maybe take that a step forward and how can we characterize people who live in the aftermath of an empire in the modern United States? Is the modern United States entering the aftermath of empire? I think that's everyone's fear, that everyone fears that there was some period of greatness that is in our past and that we are on some kind of slide. And and that's certainly... I think is a worry that comes through in Jared Diamond's Collapse book. I think that so many things are changing and, and it is very unsettling. We can see all around us that the energy upon which our society is based, that those sources of energy are finite and that we need to restructure completely, you know, the way in which we live our lives and drive to work and fly places. And, you know, we can see that all of that is really not sustainable in the long run. And and we've been, you know, but we associate all that with a certain measure of security and, and health and happiness. So I think that we live in some really, really, truly challenging times. And I'm an optimist, though, and I feel like there's a possibility to move through this period into a, for the first time, a shot at 
really designing a sustainable world in which to live. And, you know, change is happening so rapidly now. When, you know, being an archaeologist, I'm used to thinking about things that happen over 200, 300 years, 500 years. And, you know, if one wants to look back and say, oh, you know, my society, what happened in the ninth century proves that it, it wasn't sustainable. But, you know, you can't overlook the fact that something quite sustainable was in place there that built up gradually over, you know, about 2,000 years. Changes, change happens, and it's it's always a frightening thing to live through. But I, I think it's you know I think change is a constant, but it just happens at different rates. And right now we're in a very very accelerated rate of change. In talking about some of that optimism, one of the really insightful aspects of the book Questioning Collapse is your discussions on resilience and the discussions on resilience by some of the authors. Could you talk a little bit about the concept of resilience and how it plays into the transformation of a civilization? Yeah, I think that human resilience is a really interesting quality, and I suppose it's becoming uh, increasingly discussed in these days because of the desire to move towards a, a more sustainable existence. And I see, when I think about whenever I give a popular lecture someplace, inevitably someone comes up at the end of it and, and asks me, you know, if there really are Maya people still living today. And I have to tell them that there are over 4 million Maya people who, you know, speak one of several Mayan languages, and they seem really surprised by that. They think that Maya people either all died out at the end of the classic period or that they've all been sort of mixed up in the big mixing pot, that mixing bowl that was created by, you know, European presence and and European uh, conquest. I think that we have this tendency to uh, in the past, we really haven't placed much emphasis on human resilience and the ability of humans to uh, to problem solve and to survive really against all odds. And certainly as a species, that's been our evolution as a species has been all about the creation of this, you know, this giant head that we carry around and the capacity to think and to plan and to solve problems. And so to be resilient, despite the fact that we have these rather generalized bodies that are not really particularly good at any one thing, don't have a really hyper-specialized architecture other than the giant, the giant brains that we, that we grapple with, the cranial expansion. You know, so I think it's time that we really start, you know, thinking about this, not in terms of that we're the smartest species on the face of the earth, but thinking about, you know, our place in the biosphere and our role in in making this a sustainable place and how we as these resilient creatures, you know, how can we find a place in this biosphere that is something other than this perceived role as masters of the universe that seems to have felt pretty comfortable for the past hundred or so years. I'm wondering if it's fair to categorize a society as having been collapsed if a language or political system or a social structure or just some aspect of that society is passed on. Maybe maybe you could uh, speak to that. Well, I think that it's not fair to use the word collapse certainly to not use the term societal collapse. And Jared Diamond does use that term quite a bit in his book. And there's no question but that there was a 
extreme political transformation in the ninth century in the in Maya Southern Lowlands. And there's no question but that there was massive, you know, demographic shift at that point in time. Does that represent societal collapse? I think when there are 4 million people still living today who are speaking Mayan language and who are, in some cases, expressing their culture in a way that is certainly many things are different, but there's still some some core things that, that have remained. So I think it is a, a misnomer to, to use the term collapse. And, and one of the examples I sometimes will give is to think about a place like Stonehenge. I don't, Have you visited Stonehenge ever on the Salisbury Plain in England? No, I have not. Always wanted to, though. Well, no one ever goes there and looks at those giant stone megaliths and starts to say things like, oh, wow these guys really collapsed and, you know, I bet they really screwed up their environment too. You look at them and you say, wow, they were, these things are really old and this really represents a very different kind of society. This is a very different kind of the way they were mapping onto their landscape. Everything about the society was just so different from the way we live today. I mean, that's the sense that people have when they go to Stonehenge as kind of things that they say. Archaeologists have written a lot about how people have interpreted Stonehenge and how, how that does reflect a lot that has to do with British concerns and British identity and things like that in today and the challenges and problems of today. But there's something about this kind of retrodicting of using these big overblown words like collapse and reference, particularly to places in the Americas and or places in Polynesia where there was just really violent and forceful colonization and, and then a subjugation really of existing population and then an assertion that the population has vanished. And, and really, it's still in many countries of Latin America today, the official policy is that there are no indigenous people left. Even though you might have a quarter of a million people speaking, you know, Mapuche in Chile, you know, still the official word is that there are no indigenous people in, in Chile. So, you know, there's this desire to erase. And I think that then is very effective to just sweep, you know, the sweep of the eraser reaches back into the past. And certainly for people in North America, Native Americans feel that way about the kind of interpretation that Jared Diamond is giving to what happened to Chaco Canyon in northwestern New Mexico. Some Maya people, especially people in the highlands of Guatemala, felt that way about Mel Gibson's Apocalypto movie, that it was just another attempt to say that the original Americans were bad, they were ecocidal, they were power-crazed, and they went extinct, and they deserved to. So I think that one has to really think about the power of words and what one is saying and how those words will be received, especially in situations in which, where there is a descendant population that is indigenous or subaltern or in some way is largely disenfranchised. So like in reference to Apocalypto, I always wanted to go to a dinner party with Mel Gibson and to recommend to him that he quip some talented young 
indigenous Maya cinematographers with all the expensive camera gear and movie making gear that he had when he made Apocalypto and send them over to Scotland and uh, let them make a movie about his ancestry. And, you know, I don't think it would turn out to be anything like Braveheart, you know, so it's a matter of who has the power to write about and tell stories about the past. We do have to keep an eye on that and that we have a responsibility to get the story right and not get carried away with the fact that we have the power to say whatever we want to say. This is Alex Jones here, talking to you from Austin, Texas. The New World Order is coming for you. FEMA camps are right around the corner. If you don't stock up, the New World Order is going to come into your backyard and take away all of your money. The only insurance policy that you can possibly consider is gold. Buy gold, it's important, and when the FEMA camps are here, you'll recognize that you'll have to get out of your region. Buy ammo. Does it really sound like Alex Jones? Yeah. It does? Mm, it sounds like Justin's version of Alex Jones. <laughs> okay, that works. Could you do Alex Jones with a British accent? Hello there, this is British Alex Jones. <laughs> Hello there, this is Alex Jones' mother. <laughs> Alex, how are you doing today? I'm doing good, Mom. I'm just talking about the New World Order, which killed my parents. You're always going on about that New World Order. Maybe one day it'll happen and then you'll feel so happy. What are you up today, Alex? I'm working on my latest documentary on the Obama deception. It's about how President Obama is actually a tool of the New World Order. Oh, I like Obama. He sounds nice. Wait till he takes you into a FEMA camp and then you'll think differently. No, no, I think he's pretty nice. I once saw that he has a dog named Bo. Any man with a dog named Bo can't be bad. You're listening to The Extra Environmentalist, and we're speaking with Patricia McEnany, one of the co-editors of Questioning Collapse. So maybe another history kind of question. When we look back at, at the time now that we're living in, maybe from 100 years or 200 years from now, we'll see a culture that is still reeling from the aftermath of the World War II and the World War I before that. What role does archaeology play in telling the story of humanity during a period of time, in this time or in the Mayans' time? The story that our archaeology tells is, is one of survival, and we basically are telling the story of how humans have survived a lot of different kinds of challenges and how we have kind of regrouped. We've, you know, we regroup in different ways. In the aftermath of the Pleistocene, we regrouped in a way in which we started to really pay keen attention to plants and our surroundings and to really interact and co-evolve with those plants. And that resulted in domestication plants and, and event, eventually of animals also. And then we began to really regroup socially and politically. We started to group in much larger political formations and that gave rise to something that 
some would call civilization, others would call societies with extremely marked inequalities. And we're still sort of grappling with the challenges that that kind of political formation poses on society in terms of inequalities and and the aftermath of that. And then, you know, we move through, I and mean, this is really just, you know, once over lightly and with a very broad brush, but, you know, I think we are still regrouping from the, uh, we are in the aftermath of empire in the sense that when you see what's happening, I was just, um, thinking of it and listening to some coverage of what's happening in Middle Eastern countries with all of the political unrest and how some of the dictators and royalties, you know, now in power, how they came to be in power as British and other colonial powers retracted from the area because they could no longer afford to maintain their empire. We're still grappling with the aftermath of that, and it's like 100 years later. I think it does, in some ways, archaeology chronicles that insofar as it's detectable uh, materially. And, And it turns out that because part of being human is really this intense interaction with the material world that that we leave behind some pretty telling traces. <laughs> and so it's actually not that hard to figure out what was going on in a very general sense, you know. The the particulars of why things came came about the way they did is something that is sometimes more challenging to understand. And the the ninth century abandonment of the southern Maya lowlands is a case in point where we still are. We know what happened, but we're still not really sure why it happened. What, What particular constellation of interacting variables came together in a way that created a landscape that that was uninhabitable. Sure. So maybe one last question, just so we can wrap up. So what do you think it would have felt like to be a part or have been a part of Mayan society as their empire entered its sunset phase, maybe even during that that ninth century uh, abandonment? Uh, Sometimes I think it, it might have felt like it feels now that you know that you're in the middle of a a transition and you don't know how it's going to play out. You don't know if you're going to be able to continue living where you're living and how you're living because you don't know if it's really going to be sustainable in the long run, but you're just going to continue doing what you do until... um, you really absolutely have to make a change, <laughs> you know? I mean, I think that's, that's kind of, that's a pretty human thing. I ran a seminar last semester with my students, and we jokingly, we really examined what we call abandonment issues, tried to get down to the bottom of really what happened in terms of at least the timing. And it's pretty clear that the royal courts were were depopulated and that the sustaining populations are the population that the surrounding or hinterland populations that they rarely hung on for more than, you know, maybe 50 years afterward. There was uh, some kind of uh, synergism between the royal courts and the commoner peoples. That was very close. They both were both sort of I want to say fell victim to, but the same forces were acting on both of them. So and it resulted in in the abandonment of these areas. So in some ways, it might have felt similar to how it feels today, but then in other ways, of course, it, it would have felt very, very different because it was 
you know, a society that was so very different from the society in which we live today, and it was not a democracy. Do you have anything else that you'd like to to conclude with? Any uh, points that we missed that you think are definitely important for this interview? For me, um, one of the issues that I'm working on now that I didn't really have a chance to write about it in Questioning Collapse, but it relates to the issue of sustainability that we've we've talked quite a bit about today. There is a matter of just the sustainability of archaeology as it's practiced today and the way in which archaeological sites themselves, which really hold the key to the past, the way in which archaeological sites themselves are, are really kind of an endangered species. And we're coming to understand that if there's going to be any past that is still around to study and to try to figure out what happened with our ancestors that we need to move into a different way of relating to the past and that local communities need to be sort of engaged in that, in the act of conserving in a way that is not really happening today because archaeology is seen as just a, an academic pursuit that a few people engage in and, and no one else is that interested in it. So that's a kind of sustainability that I'm writing a little bit about right now and and thinking about. And that's a kind of sustainability that will, will allow us to continue to to examine the past and kind of have it with us. And I think it's important that it stays with us and that we don't just live on this atemporal landscape that is nothing but things that are less than, you know, 20 to 50 years old. And so I think and just as cultural diversity is an important thing to maintain because it allows us to create a fount of innovation and a source of innovation that we otherwise will lose. And I think it's the same way with being able to have these still places around and have a kind of a landscape diversity, a multi-temporal landscape. I, I think that is an important ingredient of human sustainability and human resilience. And so that's that's what I'm working on right now. Thank you so much for your time today and really enjoyed speaking with you. And we will put up the uh, edited episode in a week or two. All right. Thank okay, you so much, great. Patricia. Thanks a lot. Okay, you're welcome. Bye. All right, so that wraps up our discussion on the Mayan Empire and human resilience and the ideas of questioning collapse. So some of your thoughts, Seth? I love that last question that you asked about how the Mayans would have felt at the end of their civilization. I thought that was really very relevant to um, the discussion. And and it's kind of interesting. I've been talking about this, this topic with some of my friends. And I asked them the same question that you asked, how the Mayans might have felt at the end of their civilization. The person I was talking to said, well, they probably didn't know, like a lot of people nowadays. They probably didn't even un- even understand. Only a few, a very select few, really could comprehend that this is the end of their way of life. And I think that's very relevant to 
to the way it is for us now. What did you think of the conversation, Justin? I think that goes into really one of the key notions of why we wanted to speak about questioning collapse, because it's so easy to be here in Vancouver, Canada, which lives in a giant bubble. That's because one, it's so beautiful here. And two, it's because the economy hasn't really changed that much since 2008. Yes, there is trade that has decreased, but the property bubble here in Vancouver is still strong and well. And while housing prices have been falling out the floor in the United States and in a lot of countries in Europe, in Vancouver, they're still on the upswing. And so it's very easy to be here in this economy that has a very low debt to GDP ratio and in an area that's still booming in the sense of housing prices and think, you know, maybe things aren't all that bad. And you see on the news, yeah, Libya's in civil war and there's riots in all of these countries and even the United States just across the border, there's all of these issues with public employees and livelihoods being decided and put on the table. Whereas in British Columbia, sure, there are budgetary issues, but it seems like there's no more budgetary issues than in any normal year. Even though the entire way of life around the world is changing really rapidly on a seemingly daily basis, all of the previous trends that supported us are completely changing. Here, it just seems like business as usual continues. That can be the case even if you're in one of these countries that's changing rapidly. You could be in a region in the United States that hasn't been all that affected by some of the economic problems. And it's very easy to tell yourself that things are just going along like they always were, like maybe some Mayans did uh, as their civilization was going through what we now classify as a collapse. We could say, uh, you know, as a Mayan, like, yeah, you know, I can still go and buy everything I used to at the market and I can still farm like I need to. And I'm still thinking about what I'm going to plant for next season. And I'm still thinking about the next ritual that we're going to have in our society and not even recognize the broader trends that are playing out. Yes, it's very easy to look over the things that are going on in somebody else's backyard when in your yard everything looks sunny and peachy. It takes something to actually happen in your backyard for you to appreciate the scale of the changes that are going on across the world. Definitely. It comes back to the idea that truth only can be understood when it meets an experience. And when you experience something, you understand the truth and you can see all the facts about a changing climate or CO2 concentration in the atmosphere or oil production rates changing and decreasing. And all of these people can look at these trends and tell you that, you know, if this continues for 10 more years, you're going to see massive warming on a global scale of three degrees Celsius or, or whatever. Or if this continues for a particular period of time, you're going to see economic collapse because there will be no more oil and that fuels the economy. And you can very easily ignore that or dismiss the people uh, because you can question their interpretation or whatever. But the truth is those trends play out over a long period of time. And in your own life, it's easy to get sucked into using the money that you get and just focusing on increasing that accumulation. That's the advantage of money. It's so simple. It hides so many complex processes that go on in the background. And the convenience is that you can just focus on your accumulation into your retirement balance or the accumulation into your savings accounts and really feel that things are increasing and going like normal. 
uh, on the backside of that money, a lot of stuff is changing, and a lot of energy is exchanging, and a lot of supply chains are moving all of these、uh, resources around. So it's a fascinating time to be alive. It is a fascinating time to be alive. If we have helped you to bring a little bit of truth into your life, we'd like to hear about it. You can contact us by going to theextraenvironmentalist.com, leaving a comment. Sending us an email at podcast at extraenvironmentalist.com or giving us a call. And Justin, what is our phone number? Yeah, our phone number is plus one nine one nine seven zero one XTRA, and that's plus one nine one nine seven zero one nine eight seven two. And I I have seen on our analytics stats listeners from all around the world. So use your Skype, dial in. Leave us a voicemail, or just shoot us an email and tell us what you think about the show. One of the simplest ways you can interact with us is on our Facebook page. And thanks to the seventy-seven people that have、uh, liked us on Facebook and have spread the message of the Extra Environmentalist podcast. So、uh, keep spreading that message. Keep telling your friends and keep emailing out episodes to your your family and and telling them that you know here are some. Interesting ideas that we like to share, and even though guys who talk about these ideas are pretty inarticulate at times, at least they say some interesting things occasionally. Well, you know, we know that they try, so give them a pat on the back for trying. <laughs>、uh, It's going to be exciting. So、uh, take care and have a wonderful week. And hold on to your earbuds because this month's going to be crazy. Coming soon, Alex Jones's mother and Alex Jones debate in one of the most cross-hitting, cross-cutting, cross-fired discussions you have ever experienced. Alex, do you like when I cross-dress? Mom, I try to tell you a million times: no more cross-dressing. That's a tool of the new world order. Buy gold. Alex, when are you coming for dinner? I'm serving your favorite freeze-dried food. Not while the elites are meeting at Bohemian Grove right now, and I'm going there, and I'm going to film the elites as they discuss their private banking matters. Alex, have you bought your father a pound of gold yet for his birthday? No, I have four hours of audio I have to produce today, and I need to get on that, mother. So leave me alone. Oh, Alex. Well, maybe one day you'll find a nice girl and settle down. What? I do in my personal romantic life is none of your business, mother. Oh, all right. Well, did you get the cookies I sent? Yes, I did, mother, and I think that they were a tool of the new world order, so I burned them.